I'm just reminded I'd promised to take my young ward, Dick Grayson, fishing, if you'll excuse me. Biff, Bam, Pow, let's shimmy down the poles into the back cave for Batman Land. There's a problem. Better let us handle this. A weekly discussion of the 1966 Batman TV show. Each week we are joined by a guest. I don't know who he is behind that mask of his, but I do know when we need him. It's Batman! We need him now. We will discuss the Batman episodes that aired this week on SBS Viceland. When I'm not Batusing like an Egyptian, I'm Dan Barrett, billionaire playboy and a digital editor at SBS. Let's go! This week I'm joined by a co-host who, much like a sarcophagus, should never be exposed to air. It's SBS editor Nick Bassine. Uh, that's absolutely true. I uh, couldn't be happier to be here, Dan. Thank you very much. I wasn't really welcoming you. Yeah, yeah, but I, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, but someone I'm welcoming into the Batman Land Cave, that's uh, Glenn Ford, Glenn with a double N. What's your job title now? You've had a very interesting change of uh, career, stature. How do you even describe this? Oh, I, I look, um, I'm simply one of the new owners at True Publications who publishes the Phantom comic. Yeah, do you get the publisher title? Um, no, no, we've given that to a guy who works for us called Dudley Hogarth, who is the editor from the previous management. Um, he decided to stay with us, thankfully, and he's now the publisher. So there's Dudley, the publisher, and myself and my business partner, who are the two owners. But I, I guess um, if you're looking at roles, mine there is probably the um, the art director. Okay. Now, people probably don't really know the name Fru, but I think in Australia, everyone knows the Phantom comic books. Yeah, a bit of an institution. It... it um, Growing up uh, as, as a young boy, um, everyone read the Phantom comic. They were ubiquitous. They were in news agents, in, in service stations, in um, supermarkets, show bags, of course, um, doctors' waiting rooms, um, yeah. barbers. You always had a stack there when you waiting to get your hair cut. Yeah. Do you remember the first Phantom comic you picked up? Oh, look, they had a, a sameness <laughs> to them, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it could have been one of one of a dozen. Yeah. Australia's got a really interesting relationship with the Phantom in that we kind of own him as our superhero, even though he's American created and a lot of comics we read from across Europe, largely. Yeah. Look, it's funny. A lot of the readers uh, assume because he's been around for so long in this country that he's an Australian creation, but it's not the case. There's a similar thing in Scandinavia where he's been printed in Sweden, Norway and Denmark for almost as long. And uh, he's, he's coloured differently over there. He's coloured blue. They made a mistake when they first started printing them in colour over there and, and they have... Ownership of him too. There's there's even a book, uh, a collection of, of anecdotes and interviews uh, of the Phantom in Sweden, which has got him standing in front of a Swedish flag, and they're you know they're quite proud of that. Yeah, uh, but we'll go deep and dive into the Phantom in a little bit, and maybe talk about some of the similarities, I guess, between Batman and the Phantom, and the vast differences between the two characters as well. They have a cave. <laughs> they do have a cave. We'll go spelunking into that cave shortly. Uh, but first up, we're going to talk about the Batman episodes airing this week. Uh, we've got two of them, both Riddler-centric. Nick, do you want to run through what happened this week? Well, the first episode is called uh, The Ring of Wax, and the second one is Give Him the Axe. The Riddler gets a hold of some crazy wax that melts things, and he breaks into the library vault uh, to steal a book that will lead him to the treasure of the Incas. Batman and Robin try to stop him, but they get suspended over some boiling wax, escape, and punch it out in a museum filled with medieval torture devices. Yeah, it's a little weird that in an episode so heavily based around Egyptian culture that it's not a King Tut episode. Well, yeah, there wasn't a lot of... Um, thematically, I wouldn't say... I would say it was a little bit all over the place. Yeah, I think we've got King Tut in about two episodes' time. Oh, great. Yeah, or well, two weeks' time. Great. Yeah. Uh, Glenn, how, when was the last time you watched a Batman episode? 
look, recently, I guess, um, yeah. you just sort of come across them by accident. And as soon as you sit down and start watching one, you, you just can't stop. You've got to watch it all the way through to find out what happens. I didn't see the second episode. Now, I'm just curious because in the first episode, they're off to, to find an Incan treasure. How did that segue into ancient Egypt or, or shouldn't I ask? <laughs> well, I mean, usually these things are probably better ignored as, you know, plot issues. Nick, do you remember how it segued? Wait, how did it segue into ancient Egypt? It's a good question. <laughs> Who no mentioned memory. ancient Egypt? Well, because I think the book that the Riddler was after. The treasure book. Yeah, was about the sarcophagus and that was what was in the case at the end. Was it not? Oh, no, no, no. So that they were in the museum at the end and yeah. they, they did see, they looked at a sarcophagus. But I think it was unrelated to... Wasn't the, it to the contents of the book, though? I think the book was on ancient Incan treasures. It was on the it was Incan, Incan treasures. So what you're saying is the museum just happened to have Egyptian artifacts. Or maybe I've just gotten cross-culturally so. mixed up. Unless, unless other, other ancient cultures did sarcophagi. Did they? Well, I don't know. I just always assumed it was an Egyptian thing, so I went on that way. Yeah, like, that's what I kind of assumed. Yeah. We have not done as deep a dive as we um, probably could have, it sounds like. <laughs> Seemingly. Well, let's see if we get an Incan slash Egyptian expert in before we explore the King's Hut episodes, maybe. Glenn, do you happen to be? <laughs> well, I, well uh, no. no uh, but I don't think the Incans had uh, sarcophagi, if I can use the Latin as you did. Because um, they went once they once they um, sacrificed their victims, there wasn't too much left. They just threw all the yeah, bits right. away. So, so it must have been an unrelated um, yeah, Egyptian, but, but nice display. Yeah. Mm. It says here that they found the jewels in a secret panel in their sarcophagus. They were hidden to guard against grave robbers who were very prevalent in olden days. Uh, so, this episode we open with a expected unveiling of a Batman statue. Gotham's finest are being treated instead of a Batman statue to an unveiling of a Riddler statue who turns around and starts spraying them with some mysterious goose. What is this ghastly travesty? Why, that's not Batman. That's the Riddler. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> was that a statue or was that a wax figure or was that really him? No, it was a figure. Was it? I that's really so. good. Because wasn't he rotating backwards and forwards? Yeah. Oh, I think it was him dressed up as a... Wax figure. Oh, he was just staying very motionless. I, guess, I, when I, was yeah. I couldn't see him breathing. He was but doing when, an amazing when, he, job. when he started spraying the the goop, I um, said, "Did start moving." That that movement was was very um, static. I, I think to, to okay. indicate that it was a, a statue. Yeah, because the thing with Frank Gorshin as the Riddler, he's such a energetic, like loud performer that I just assumed he was a statue. Yeah, well, he can be very animated and very still, apparently. Yeah. What very, was very that? statuesque. <laughs> very much so. What was that stuff coming out of that gun? I don't know. It was red. Is all was I it know. paint or was it supposed to be wax? What was it meant to be? I assumed it was wax. And then nothing happens yeah, to people it, it when just, it, it, it just, just gets got on them. On them and that, that was it. <laughs> what a fame. <laughs> horrible monster. Stuff. Um, I like the beginning of the episode has uh, Bruce uh, teaching Dick about the... It, it's part of a game. It's the game of capitals. Dick is so stupid. <laughs> he doesn't know anything. I thought Lima was the capital of Ecuador. Now, as you can see, I was right. It's the capital of Peru. At the beginning of all of these episodes, it's inevitable <laughs> that he doesn't know something. I, I think that maybe the series was a, a lesson for him in general. You would hope so. He learned a lot of things, often about going off for fishing trips with Bruce's old chums from college. I was a little creeped out by that. Uh, <laughs> so he's got an old chum, and they're meeting with his ward to talk about fishing. To tie some flies. Oh, and Harriet, I forgot to tell you. Dick and I are having dinner with an old college chum of mine. He's promised to show Dick how to tie flies. He's an expert fisherman. 
Let's hurry, Dicker. We're going to be late. Who knows what's going to happen? (laughs) (laughs) I've got no idea. Well, he's an expert fisherman. So, you know, I'm sure that it was only the finest of fishing-related knowledge being passed on. It sounded terrifying. I really shudder to think what Aunt Harriet actually thinks is going on day to day. I loved Aunt Harriet's use of thither and yon. Oh, those two. Hither, thither, and yon. Like that's a normal thing people said in the 60s, I guess. Well, I say it now. I say it everywhere. Both thither and yon. That's why you're so popular around the office. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, I like that we end up in an innocent-looking candle factory. Yeah. Yeah, because of all those sinister-looking candle factories that you encounter on a day-to-day basis. Um, some of these sets are starting to blend together a little bit, starting to look very familiar. Well, this episode felt really cheap. So the last couple of episodes have had these really big set pieces where they've been using the back lots of Warner Brothers and the 20th Century Fox Western lots. So they've been these really big, expansive episodes. But this one seems to be a bit of a bottle episode where it was really only about three or four sets. There wasn't really much going on in terms of variance here. I felt like we also didn't get a lot of Batman and Robin, to be honest. I felt like, um... Who was the actress that played Moth? Um, She looked familiar. Oh, she was... um, I looked her up. She was one of these actresses who I think did a lot of just generic work playing, you know, girl number three in various things throughout the 60s. I saw some Gidget on a resume. A chorus girl. A chorus girl, somewhat. Oh, Batman, Henny, Moth learned her lesson. Really, she has. Crime doesn't pay. Unfortunately, you learned your lesson too late, Moth. A moth that plays around candles is bound to be burned. Uh, but if we're going to talk about cast members, the one to look at is the gentleman that played one of uh, the Riddle's goons. And you saw who the actor was? Oh, man, that brought back some memories. Yeah, uh, for those who may not have noticed, it was an actor named Joey Tarter, probably best known as Joe E. Tarter, as he changed his name later professionally. He was Nat, the peach pit owner from 90210. So Beverly Hills fans... As I, if I remember correctly, he was a, just a huge cheese ball, that, <laughs> that uh, diner owner. Yeah, pretty much. And he's one of these actors who just appeared in pretty much everything through the 60s and 70s. Career started drying up, but then 90210 came along, and I suspect probably paid for a very nice house for him. Um, so Moth is um, Linda Gay Scott. Okay. And yeah. she has been in, she was in Westworld, The Party. The P- Westworld, that's right. She was one of the, uh, yeah, yeah, one of the, um, <laughs> the saloon girls, I think. It's probably the nicest term. Did she, was it a big role? No, she, she had to um, play a robot that slept with one of the cowboys. All of these gangs have a, inevitably a woman whose job it is, is to um, kind of question the plan a little bit and then uh, to be turned on by Batman and Robin in some way. <laughs> Yeah. Always happens. Well, they're only human, you know. Well, at the end of every episode, at least the last like four or five times we've seen this happen, the woman at the end suddenly gets let off from whatever crime she's committed. So she goes off to some reform place and there'll always be a scene where she comes back and she's reformed two years later. And it's basically because she had like a rough upbringing, suddenly excuses her for all of her crimes. But I guarantee that Tallow, the henchman of the Riddler, he wasn't given that same leniency. But interestingly, this time through, she was just considered one of the villains that, you, well, just one of the henchmen in the same and way she as had the rest. A, she had a code name. Yeah, which is unusual. Which was unusual. And there happens to be a killer moth bad guy that Batman in faces the comics. in the comics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this one, because there was the candle motif running through. So I think she was named Moth only for the Moth to a Flame thing at yeah. the end. Yeah. I mean, that made it very powerful. Yeah. Uh, this episode, very downbeat and low key compared to most that we've seen recently. 
Oh, except for Frank Caution. He's, he's always over the top. Oh, yeah, he was over the top. But I don't know. It just seemed like the actual episode in terms of scale, it just seemed like it was just very small and insular. I got to be honest. I, I'm getting a little Gorshined out. Um, <laughs> well, this is third is appearance at, in the season. Too much? He's at 11. He turns it up to 11 throughout, throughout the in, entire episode. Well, no, that's not fair, maybe. He does tone it down sometimes, like when he was dressing as the Patriot or whatever. Yeah, down to nine. <laughs> <laughs> but his laugh is starting to really give me a lot of anxiety. I had the um, I had the the pleasure of seeing him live many many years ago. Really? He did a, a show at it was like St George League's Club or something like that back in the eighties, oh, wow. and he was he was amazing. He did a it was all in, impersonations, right? And oh, um, wow. he did a a gunfight between um, Bert Lancaster. Uh, Kirk Douglas on one side and Jack Nicholson and Bruce Dern, if you remember him on the other. <laughs> yeah, of course. And all it was is just grins and, and different stances. <laughs> and every time he went to a character, you knew exactly who it was. So that's, that's how good he was, you know. That's amazing. Mm. Oh, wow. Insane. Why, with this illegally imported substance, there is no vault I cannot enter. Oh, hear me, what I Nothing can stop me now. Yeah. Uh, the crowd that came out for Frank Gorshin, do you think they were just comedy fans or was it just purely like a Batman fan audience? Bit of, bit, bit of both. I mean, there's, yeah. there were some older people there who, who um, knew him from his earlier career. But, uh, yeah, it was a good, good healthy mix. He, he, did a, he did a Riddler skit, which was, you know, pretty funny. Yeah. Because uh, as a child of the 80s, I've always grown up with him as being the guy from Batman as the Riddler. And so when I think about his history, I only kind of know that he was in a, like a performer regularly on the Carson show. So, I mean, outside of that, I just wonder how many Australians sort of know his work outside of being Batman's villain. I, I, I guess like any of those guys, he had a, um, a Vegas career, I guess you'd call it, where, yeah. where he did the, the, the comedy circuit. Um, and I guess the Carson show was part of that. Um, so he had a stand-up act. Yeah, yeah, but it was all it was all impersonations. It was, um, oh, wow. But they were just spot on. Beauty, after all, is in the eye of the beholder. Well, I'm sorry. I, I yeah. said I'd had enough of him. He, he was like a more substantial Michael Winslow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I watched these things with my seven-year-old son, and um, Robin's line, I'll show you how dead I am before he punches somebody. I uh, got a big laugh out of him. <laughs> I was impressed. Hey, look, um, just speaking of Robin, the one thing that I thought was maybe just a little bit strange in the episode, and in the second episode of the two-parter, Robin's climbing up the outside of the building by himself, which we haven't seen so far. Right. But he's struggling his way up there. It seems that without Batman to really be, I guess, holding the rope, like he's not handling it well. It's not like he's pushing him when they're both going up. I don't understand. Well, there's probably something in the utility belts, I guess. A magnet. A Robin magnet. Also, they spent something like five minutes talking about, are you sure you want to go up there by yourself, Robin? Be careful, Robin. Don't try to capture the Riddler and the gang by yourself. Come immediately downstairs and open the door for me. I'll handle it. Do you understand? Roger. And take your bat communicator and keep in touch. Now, Glenn, I'm absolutely fascinated as a lifelong Phantom reader as to what's going on at the Phantom at the moment, because you've obviously had a passion for the character. You've been doing cover art for Phantom Comics for years and years now. So maybe let's just start there. What actually brought you to the Phantom as a professional? Oh, look, as a professional, I uh, always wanted to draw comics. It was, a, I guess, a childhood ambition. And back then, Fru publishes the Phantom with the only game in town. If you wanted to draw 
a comic in Australia. Yeah, yeah, it had to be the Phantom. There was um, there was a, a very small independent scene, I guess, but most of that were writer artists who were still funding their projects. So the the Frew Phantom comic had been around since 1948, and it was quite well established. And when you're talking about art, you're talking mostly cover art. There was yeah. very few commissions by Frew for actual internal. I, I did one one full story, which was a, a 40 page story, which took ages, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I did about 50 or 60 covers, I think, over the years. So what brought you to comic art? Because, I mean, a lot of Australian professionals I know are drawn very much from American characters like Batman to their love of comics. Did you take a similar path? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like, like I was saying, my, most Australian boys read comics as a, as a kid and what was available back then were usually just black and white reprints of the American comics, so the American Superman, Batman, Silver Age comics. And you're talking, you know, the imaginary stories and the, the, the many different suits of Batman, those kinds of stories from the 60s. And they were filtered down and, and um, reduced to black and white and printed locally. And that what was what, um, what was available back then. Did you come to Batman as a fan of the TV show or did you come to Batman through a love of the comics first? The other way around, yeah, I came to the TV show through the comics. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when 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 they were doing a, a TV show. It was, there was also a um, a series of Marvel animated cartoons back around the same time, which were pretty woeful. Um, but that was that was um, an, an exciting time of the week for me to sit down and watch those. They had Captain America, Hulk, Iron Man. Who were the Super Friends? Weren't the Super Friends around? They, they were they were a DC property. That they were basically a. Um, I guess a blandized version of the Justice League. Okay. It was, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Green Lantern. Green, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Yeah, hang out at the Hall of Justice. Yeah, and just done for a, a younger audience. And there's a Spider-Man Back 60s then, cartoon yeah. also. Or was he part of the bigger group? No, so you had Spider-Man just as his own cartoon character, which is where you get that cool theme song from. But later on, there was Spider-Man and his amazing friends, I think it was called. Yep. Something and it was like him and Marvel Fire, Girl. Firestar and... and oh, sorry, Firestar. Spider-Woman, I think, anyway. But, um, yeah, that was a similar thing. That was Marvel uh, dumbing it down for a, for a younger audience. Yeah. Dumbing it down for all those stupid kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those, those ne'er-do-wells that grow up to be nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so... So if you came to the show through the comics, what were your impressions of the, the show and, and its adaptation of the comic? Well, it was kind of a mixture of um, uh, excitement and, and disbelief, I guess. I couldn't believe that they were, and using the, the term at the time, I couldn't believe they'd made it so camp. Yeah. Um, was can, that a betrayal of to, to, what you to, thought to, Batman to me, was? Yeah, to me as a, as a, as a, um, a, comic, a Batman comic reader, yeah, sure. But... Um, Years later, as you grow and mature, you, know, you have a look at it through different eyes and you realise um, you know, just what good fun it was and how it was really quite harmless. It wasn't trying to offend anybody. That's interesting because I would imagine that in the 60s, Batman, the, the comic was fairly light. Is that not right? Uh, yeah, look, certainly compared to what they are now. But I'm just trying to think of the comics of the, at the time. They were, they were, um, they tended to be uh, detective stories where Batman was put into a situation where he had to use his noggin to figure something out, and there's always clues along the way, and, and, and the sharp, sharp-eyed reader could pick those up, right. um, and he had to use those clues to, to to solve the crime. And none of that got into the TV show, hmm. in, in my opinion. Yeah, and talking with a lot of the guests that we've had, generally the sort of median age of them all have been sort of mid-30s for a lot of our guests. Yeah, I'm a bit older. Yeah, and well, this is what I'm interested in because a lot of these guys like myself grew up with Batman as it was sort of post-Adam West and just as I was becoming sort of really conscious as like almost a teen, 
you had the Tim Burton films coming out. So, I mean, I grew up with Michael Keaton as my Batman. So when I think of Batman as a pop culture character beyond the comics, I think of him very much as Michael Keaton. And to a side extent, I think about Adam West as Batman. And then the rest just kind of acts as playing the role. But I mean, you came to the character as comics first and then the TV afterwards. So when you think about Batman sort of beyond the comics, do you associate him with a actor or is it purely just the extension of comics and becoming other properties? No, I, I guess reading the comics as much as I did, that that's that's pretty firmly ingrained in, in, into my head. I, I You think of Batman, I don't think of a, an actor or, or a particular. Not uh, even Lego Batman? <laughs> You've got me there. <laughs> um, I knew it. In terms of the movies and TV shows, like who's your favourite? Oh, I think the, the last lot, the... Um, the Christian Bale... Yeah. I think they were great. Yeah, Christopher Nolan. I think he's a genius, you know. Yeah. Were they most aligned with what you wanted your Batman to be in live action? Well, probably most aligned with where Batman ended up back in the, the late 70s, early 80s when, when he, he got all dark and vengeful, I, I think. I think Nolan got that, yeah, I think he nailed that spot on, you know, the whole um, instrument of vengeance thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, Batman Begins takes a lot of cues from Frank Miller's year one. And I don't know, like when I saw Batman Begins, it was the most fully realized comic book movie I'd seen in the cinema up until that point, I think. Wasn't Spider, wasn't Sam Raimi's Spider-Man before that? Yeah, I don't know. It just kind of always felt a bit different. It never quite felt authentically like the Spider-Man from the comics. It felt more like the licensed version of Spider-Man on screen. What about when he's swinging around and screaming woohoo? Oh, well, I mean, you got me there. <laughs> uh, the new Spider-Man film, though, feels a lot like the comic Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah. Same spirit, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but let's maybe just talk about The Phantom a little bit more because I think it's just a really unique opportunity to talk about The Phantom with someone who's actually a creative on it. I mean, if you think about The Phantom, largely we are getting comics from Scandinavian countries primarily. Mainly, yeah. 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 So how does that work? So I'm just really interested in Fru's publishing. Like, how do you curate which stories to publish at any given moment? How does it work internally? It's tricky. Our readership's um, quite clearly divided. We have guys, I guess, like myself, who have um, grown up reading The Phantom and, you know, they, they may have gone down to got their, get their hair cut and sit down and, and read a stack of them and they don't want things to change. They want to go down to the newsagent and buy a Phantom comic now. They want it to be exactly the same as what it was when they grew up so they get that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling um, and, and revisit all of that. But we can't do that. We can't keep on reprinting the same old stuff because we'll, we'll just go out of business. You know? Yeah. So we have to chop and change it a bit. And luckily there's a, a good percentage of our readership that does want to see new stories that welcomes change. And so that's where the Swedish stories come in. And the Swedish have a huge backlog that there are over 100 stories now uh, in the inventory that, that have never been printed by Fru. So we can dip into that whenever we want. So up until now, where were the stories coming from? So the Phantom's interesting that unlike, say, Batman comics, which are all American-based, they were coming from other countries around the world. So... Not a lot. Most of what Fru printed over the years was reprinted from the um, daily and Sunday newspaper strips. And all Fru would do would just be to gather them all together into the one story. A daily strip may go on for six months in a newspaper and, yeah. and Fru would, would get the six months worth and, and stick them into a couple of comics. And that's why often you'd see in a Phantom comic panels repeating. What you're getting there is the last panel on a Friday and a first panel on a Monday. And, you know, the weekend's gone past and people have forgotten things so they need to let you know where you are. But at one point, I think in the 80s, they caught up everything that had been printed in newspapers through had done. So they had to start looking further afield. And, and the only people back then that were doing new Phantom material were the Swedes. So they started licensing reprints from them. And what's different in terms of the tone and the way that story is approached? 
Well, the big difference is that the newspaper strips, by nature of what they are, uh, can be enjoyed by any member of the family. King Features, who owned the Phantom, is owned by the Hearst Corporation. One of their, I guess, mission statements was that any member of the family could sit down and grab a Hearst newspaper and open up to any page and read it without being offended. But not so with the Swedes, because it was a comic book, first of all, not a reprint of a comic strip. They could be a little bit more... um, Adventurous. They could they could be a bit darker. That there, there's uh, there was more violence in the Swedish stories and certainly more um, gratuitous nudity, which um, what? I know. Good morning. <laughs> Hello. Which uh, did upset some of the readers back then, but that they've uh, now that it's the 21st century that they've kind of gotten used to that. I, I guess when we reprint a Swedish story, we don't like to edit things. We like to reprint it exactly as it was for the purists. And so you, you'll get, you know, the odd naked woman flitting across a page every now and then. But, uh, Just randomly running running across. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> as they do. <laughs> well, it's very liberal. <laughs> uh, so in terms of uh, publishing going forward, are you just leaning purely now just on the Swedish books or are you looking to maybe commission stuff locally? We're commissioning to... some local stuff. Um, one of the good things about the, the character, about the Phantom, is um, he's 400 years old, right? It, the, the mantle gets passed on from father to son. And so from a creative point of view, from a, from a writer's point of view, for example, a writer can pick any period or any location within that 400 years to write a story, which is great. And so someone's come along and said, uh, well, wouldn't it be neat if um, I really want to write a gothic horror story and I want to put the Phantom in there, so let's stick him in Victorian London and you know, uh, introduce some nasty um, literary characters uh, and see what happens. And, and we're doing that now with a, a series called Phantom by Gaslight which is a little backup feature um, that we're now including in some of the comics. And that's yeah. been um, produced locally by a writer called Chris Sakira and an artist called uh, Jason Paulus. And they're doing a wonderful job, you know, having the Phantom meet Jack the Ripper and the Invisible Man and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I guess inspired somewhat by the Batman by Gaslight comics oh, from yeah, the sure. late yeah. 80s. Yeah. yeah, I'm a big fan of the Elseworld series, if you know the Elseworld. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Elseworlds, for those that don't know, they were Batman comics that suppose that, you know, what if Batman's parents hadn't died? And so it's kind of an alternate version of that, but also that's placing Batman into different times and um, contextualizations. Is he just a lot happier and just laughing all the time? Yeah, sometimes. Goes sometimes. to movies, yeah. Yeah. just relaxes. Eats pop- <laughs> popcorn, does, nice. does it all. How do you reach new audiences with such a... An old, iconic character. It's, 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 it's hard. We've introduced a kid phantom comic, believe it or not, to try and get to younger readers. There's a, there's a famous story called The Childhood of the Phantom where he's traditionally sent off to school to get an education and uh, he goes to America, I think, at the age of 12 to high school and then in the story, all of a sudden, in the next panel, he's 16 at college. And so the premise behind it all is, okay, what happens in between those two panels? Four years have, have elapsed. He's the heir to the title of the Phantom. He's not going to be sitting there doing nothing in those four years. So let's have a look at that and, and get him into a kid Phantom costume and give him some adventures growing up in, in America. That's been written by Andrew Constant, who we talked about before, and drawn by a Brisbane artist called Paul Mason. And there, he does this wonderful, energetic, almost animated style, I guess you'd call it. And... Um, We've got a couple of issues out there now, and that's been really well received. We're getting pictures being sent in from proud parents showing their, their young kids reading Kid Phantom comics on the lounge and then asking if they can read the adventures of the older Phantom once they get through that. So it's it's working. Yeah, maybe stay clear of those Swedish books. But oh, yeah. 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 We'll put little <laughs> black squares over them or something. My, uh, my only entry point into the, the Phantom is more or less the 1996 movie with... Uh, with Billy Zane. So yeah. well, what's your relationship with that with that movie? I worked on it for a couple of weeks doing storyboards for the original production. Nice. Um, 
And the original production would have been, well, it would have been a, a quite a different movie. It was going to be directed by Joe Dante. And I think at some point, from what I understand, he just looked at it and said, look, there's not enough money to do this and pulled out and took it back to Paramount and they refunded it and that's when it became an Australian production. It was written by a screenwriter called Jeffrey Bohm who did the second Indiana Jones movie. And as a result, it kind of has a like an Indiana Jones... It's got an adventure feel to yeah, it. Yeah, which, you know, doesn't work for some people. Billy Zane was great. He was a big Phantom fan. He was over here in Australia to do Dead Calm, if you remember Dead Calm. Yeah, with Nicole sure. Kidman. Yeah, and Sam Neill. And I think married one of the girls that gets killed early in the, in the movie and ends up floating around at the bottom of the boat, um, <laughs> yeah. I think became his wife. They met on the film and he had an introduction to the character, I think, by living here for a little while. When he turned up for the audition, I think he actually was wearing the, the rings, the skull ring. And he's a big guy. He's, he's like six foot four or something. Um, and he really worked hard physically for the role. But it just, look, I don't know. It just didn't quite work for me, the, the whole look of the thing. Yeah. Now, an interesting counterpoint between the Phantom and Batman is that while the Batman character's got a secret identity of Bruce Wayne, uh, Batman very much is the main draw card. But, you know, he does have a presence like in the real world. The Phantom, however, doesn't really have that same real-world character. So there's Kit Walker, which is like a noms de plume that he sort of uses around the place. But it's not like that's really part of his day-to-day life. He's pretty much just the Phantom. Yeah, it's a weird one because that's been handled in different ways by different writers, but it's pretty accurate. I mean, there's a good description of this. Uh, Superman is Clark Kent in a costume, but Bruce Wayne is Batman out of costume. Yeah. yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And it's a bit the same with the Phantom. Mr. Walker's just another set of clothes that he puts on and he's the Phantom all the time. He's always uh, he's always on the case. He's always you know, doing something. Yeah, now from an art standpoint, when you do read a Phantom comic and Kit Walker's out and about, he's always got the sunglasses on. He's usually got some sort of trench coat and hats. Yeah. But you never see his face. And I was wondering, as someone of whom is now one of the you know um, publishers of the Phantom and you are actually commissioning new stories... How are you approaching that? Are you maintaining the integrity of never revealing the Phantom's face? Yeah, that's a big thing to a lot of fans. Um, that, and there's actually been a couple of stories where people who have seen the face of the Phantom die a horrible death. How does it work with Kid Phantom? I mean, I'm out of sight of the demographic of reading Kid Phantom, so I haven't picked it up yet. Well, he's 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 just um, he's just a naughty boy who um, who puts on the costume to have adventures late at night when there's no one around. I guess. Yeah. So you do see the face. It's not like oh, that's yeah, a, yeah, 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 and you won't die. Yeah. So when he sort of graduates to being non-Kid Phantom, but actually Phantom. Like at that stage, the that's face when, That's when you don't look at him. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Usually on the podcast, we wind out each episode with a discussion about the lessons that we've learned from this week's Batman. Uh, Nick, what scholarly advice have you taken on board? I found that there were quite a few lessons to be learned. Um, but the one that resonated the most with me was when Batman said, uh, remember, Riddler, you can't buy friends with money. It's so true. <laughs> so so true i mean uh, i've tried i've definitely tried yeah it does it doesn't work i got a lunch out of it one day people gotta like you for you dan now i learned a very important lesson from the game of capitals um i learned that if we don't know a lot about our neighbors to the south how do we keep our good neighbor policy going yeah it's impossible great information to take on board absolutely uh, Glenn, how about yourself? Did you take away any sort of learnings? I, I think the important thing is to keep your poles lubed. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Well, so you can slipper uh, down to the Batcave. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think this, as that's not the first time we've discussed the lube de poles. I'm sure. So this has been another slippery episode of Batman Land. We'll be back next week with a Joker two-parter, which I think we all love the Cesar Romero Joker episodes. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun so far. Glenn, thank you very much for stopping by. Thank you. Obviously, you can pick up the fans from each week. Pretty much each fortnight, yeah. 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 Can people find you on Twitter or Facebook? Yeah, we've got a Facebook page, yeah. Through publications. Yeah, so if you type in through, that's F-R-E-W. Yep, Yeah. Yeah, you'll find it, yeah. Uh, So yeah, definitely check out the Phantom. And if you haven't read the Phantom for a few years, if like so many Australians, you just got them in show bags and you maybe haven't revisited the Phantom as an adult, do go back and read it because the stories are really good. Like they're sophisticated adult stories. Uh, If you enjoy the podcast, leave a review five stars preferably helps other people find the show of course you can watch the show on SBS Viceland every Friday evening at 6.30 I'd like to thank Nick very much for stopping by Nick you're on Twitter where? I'm at Lubed Poles 69 uh... Lubed Poles it's, it's a couple of times I just repeated a couple of times because there was already a Lubed Poles take yeah uh, I'm at Nick Pacino on Twitter and people can find me at the Dan Barrett thank you very much for listening and we'll speak to you next week